As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi, Barry. Good to see you, boys. It's just waking up, Chapman, by the look of you. You know, you're just... I've just had a shower, Barry. That's my, that's my best hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, we don't have that problem with young Slater, do we? So it's okay. <laughs> no, we don't. No, no. Brilliant. Thanks for doing this, Barry. I know, I know the athletic well. I knew them when they. I knew the boys when they first started, and I know a lot of the key people that joined them at the beginning. They, I mean, I don't know what they end up with YouTube for because they do set a very, very high standard of journalistic <laughs> approach. Yeah. So, yeah. Is- so well done, you. <laughs> Well, that is the voice of Barry Hearn talking to myself, Mark Chapman and Matt Slater. The man has had a very, very interesting career in uh, boxing, darts, snooker, football, to name just a few. And the whole of this week's Business of Sport pod here on The Athletic is our chat with Barry Hearn. Give us a bit of background then for people who who aren't necessarily the UK audience, who don't know your your backstory. It's a, it's a pretty simple rags to riches Cinderella story that I think appeals to some people. I certainly like it because it changed my life. You know, dad was a bus driver, mum was a domestic cleaner, um, worked hard, became, you know, put my head down, got a qualification, chartered accountancy, so I had some sort of starting point. And then I was very ambitious and I didn't care what I did and I didn't care how many hours I put in. I think my work ethic made up for me not being academically so bright. Great degree of common sense and uh, saw opportunities. God smiled on me and gave me a lot of those. People were walking into my life like Steve Davis off the street, which changed my life. Snooker, you know, becoming one of the biggest sports in the UK when colour television came in. And then, of course, when Sky came in, I was in the right place at the right time. And again, and I built up a lot of different sports. Then took over various... And I decided I wanted to own content, so I took over sports rather than just work with them. Um, I don't, I'm a cynical type of bloke. I don't trust anyone. Probably is why I made quite a good boxing promoter. And, and over the years, I've just promoted sports that I'm passionate about myself. As it's turned out, I've made a load of money, which wasn't, that wasn't really the aim at the time. It was 
he wants to have fun and, and enjoy sport. And I've always been in awe of people with uh, with special ability. So the company started off underneath a, a billiard hall, snooker hall, pool hall, whatever you want to call it. In 1982, with me and one secretary PA, today it has offices all over the world and it's probably one of the biggest sports promotions, if not the biggest, in the world. So, obviously, after bits that I've ended up, not quite sure how I got there, to be honest, um, taking advantage of every day that God gives me. At 73 years old, I can still kickstart jumbos. Uh, and I'm passionate as much as I was when I started about the sports I love. Do you think the passion is the key when it comes to working in the sports that you work in? Because you will have been approached by many sports to try and turn them round, but you have to be passionate about the ones that you work in. I think the key to common sense is to realise there's a limit to what you can achieve and everything to do a job properly takes such a long time. People look at me and say, oh, what a job you've done with the darts unbelievable it's all over the world it's making millions of pounds it's changing lives and i say yeah 16 years that took me and i oh you've gone back into snooker it was dying and now it's flying and blah blah 10 years that took me so it's not as if you can suddenly say you are the greatest sports guru of all time and you can change everything because you simply won't get the time Despite the fact, you know, I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan in terms of management, you know, the management I've built up, although I'm less or less the face of the business because I'm now known as Eddie Hearn's dad, not, not Barry Hearn. <laughs> um, but that's the world of social media we live in, isn't it? But I built up some tremendous management behind me. But without the passion and without the hands-on approach, it wouldn't be the same business. You'd just become... I'm not being disrespectful when I say you've just become you know, one of these huge companies that own lots and lots of sports rights. And, you know, do they really have that gut feel about... Someone once said to me, what would you do, you know, if it was the last hour of the world, you know? And for those cricket fans, I can tell you that Jeff Boycott would go to the Nets, you know? <laughs> Steve Davis would have one last frame of Stuka. And I'd probably go to a darts match and have a couple of pints as the world just evaporated in front of me. Unless you've got that depth of passion, then it doesn't really ring true. There are lots of sports that could do with my expertise, my team's expertise, but we don't do things. I know this sounds crazy because we're a highly profitable company, but we don't do things just to make money. You know, we have to have fun as well because... That's the one thing that you you must never lose sight of, the fact that we're not, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. We're not here for that long, so make sure you enjoy it. And uh, Now, if you can turn a bob or two as well, even better, but it's not the first and only reason. But the key as well, in one of the quotes that uh, I've seen you say, I don't know how recently you said this, is it's not show me the money, it's show me the data. So for all the passion and for all the enjoyment, that's the other side of it. I know lots of people with passion in a sport, but with no idea of commercialisation. So, and this applies to a huge number of governing bodies in particular that are and, and predominantly Olympic sports governing bodies that are passionate about the sport they do, no question. I've come across them over and over and over again and absolutely useless on commercialisation. So they don't change people's lives. 
they lack the desire to improve the welfare of the people that participate. But you couldn't fault their passion for the sport of gymnastics. But so that's where you have to get this mixture of passion and the heart on one side and the wallet on the other, which is the understanding of data, target audience, commercialization, everything from NFTs to digital exploitation to pay-per-views. That's your wallet. And you merge the two. And the bit in the middle, which is Matrim, is the perfect scenario where we do care, and we, but, but at the same time, we are pragmatic enough to realise there has to be an end game, there has to be a profit, there has to be sustainability, and there has to be activity, which is why, as a company, we survived COVID so much better than anyone else, because we just refused to lay down, we continued our activity, we had enough money and enough passion to say we're not going to cut prize money at all, irrespective of bloody COVID. Barry, I was I was very interested to hear you say you're a big Warren Buffett fan. It makes me think you must be the, the <laughs> yeah. sage of Brentwood. Um, with, with that in mind, and everyone knows snooker, darts, yeah. fishing, poker. I'm missing some. Pool, uh, bowling, boxing. Ping pong. Yeah. Bowling. Yeah, yeah pool. Um, right, so go on then, what's next? Give me, give me a sport... Give me a sport of the next five years and then maybe throw it ahead. Five and ten. The next big push will be on nine ball pool, which is the US, you know, US pool. We've been doing it for years with the Moscone Cup and the World Pool Masters. But the key in, in the sports business is ownership of volume brands. And nine ball pool is played by more people than, than snooker, for example, around the world without having the imagery or the activity or the reward for players that play. So we we have the US Open on Sky next week. Um, Doug Trump's gone in it, which is brilliant. And he's gone in it to have some fun, which I absolutely love about him. Good luck. And he adds to the event. Other people will play if the money's there. I mean, it's just about activity and creating opportunity, which is equal to money. For us, sport is a version of the Truman Show. You know, we're not looking at an individual, but we're looking at millions of individuals through sport. And that, and that we find it as a nation and as a world gripping entertainment. Which sport haven't Matchroom been involved in, haven't you been involved in, that you would have loved to have been involved with? Well, cricket, obviously, because I should have invented, and I'm such a schmuck, I should have invented 2020 cricket. It's got my handwriting all over it, hasn't it? You know, it's like when darts meets cricket, you know, Friday night, entertaining. The key to successful sports promotion is to attract, not the traditional audience, to attract the casual fan. And 2020 cricket, as with darts, uh, does it? I mean, I, I guess you boys have been to darts events and, and some of the listeners on this may not understand, you know, darts is, is growing rapidly in America, for example, but it's still not mainstream. But it, it will do because as a sport, it has no barriers to entry and it's completely diverse. The secret of all these things is to make sure that we, we get people that change the game, the, the flag bearers, if you like, you know. All I want is kids to look at something on TV and go, one day I'd like to do that, you know. I think we've got it on darts. You know, there's a lot of kids coming through areas that I came from, council house, poor, poor areas, with perhaps not the opportunity. But you know what? 
someone will buy you a dartboard, stick it in your bedroom, and smash the granny out of those 20s, that struggle 20s, and come out a great player and have a dream. It's sports about dream. So we've got to give them the opportunity to live the dream and we benefit from it. We stage events, we make money, and the people that watch them have entertainment. It's a win win for everybody. But you have to be professional and you have to do it the right way. It's interesting that you mentioned. 2020 is something that you feel you missed and, and could, yeah. could have invented because one of the reasons people believe the 100 was invented for this summer was because the ECB didn't actually have ownership of the format yeah. Of, yeah. of T20. And all of a sudden it got played in, obviously, India and the IPL yeah. and yeah. Australia That's and the Big Bash. And the actual format isn't owned by the ECB. So that highlights, I suppose, Barry, your point, whether it be with the, with the darts or the snooker or, or the pool that you're, you're doing now, the importance of, of actually owning the format that gives you the control. I think ownership is the key issue which has separated us from other sports companies over the years. You know, we have represented people on occasions. We have managed sportsmen and women on occasions. But the key issue for us was always, even if it's rubbish, Make it our rubbish. <laughs> Let's own it. You know, even if it's tiny, when you own things, you do take over a fiduciary responsibility. You know, you you don't own things in in a way that you control to other people's disadvantage. You actually own things where people are happy to be with you. So I often describe myself as a benevolent despot. I I, I know I can't do my job properly unless I have total control. Because in the in the days of Anar and Bevan and Labour leaders of socialists of the past, collective bargaining is still the best way to drive a product. When you split a product's activities, if you want to call it like that, you do take the chance of devaluing some of it or all of it. So clearly, you know, it's a monopolistic argument, but it can be beneficial if it's in the hands of the right owners. And that's the, that's the quantum test, isn't it? So the quantum test is, have you put, have you changed lives for the better? Have you created sporting, have you created a sporting empire which has actually benefited sport uh, as well as everybody else? And that's the key question. So ownership remains key. One of my proudest days was, was taking over ownership of World Snooker, for example, because I'd worked with them for years and I'd seen what happens when self-interest destroys sport. You know, top players want to make sure top players get looked after. They don't give a shit. Lower-ranked players. Lower-ranked players, they, they don't really care about the top players. They want to live. They want to survive. But they may not deserve it because they may not be good enough. So it has to, everything has to be based on a level playing field with equal opportunities for everyone and built on one criteria, ability. And then you have a successful sport. Which is why... I'm guessing if horse racing comes to you, you're talking about the jockey club, if rugby league comes to you, if golf comes to you, if cricket comes to you, there are so many interested parties. There's so much self-interest. You have to cut that out, you know. I mean, Bernie Eccleston showed us how to do it with Formula One. There's, there's an example for you, you know. I mean, the, I'm not saying good or bad about Bernie. I mean, I've met him a few times. I see certain traits of myself in him where, where we are a little bit all over everything. You know, we want to have control of everything, you know. But that's built on a belief that we can do it better than anyone else. Now, if that's true, then giving people like us control is beneficial. 
And in Bernie's case, he built Formula One from nothing to a, a major business. I built Matchroom from an office underneath a, a, a pool hall, if you like, or a snook hall. Yeah, we, we've shown that we can we can survive the test of time and we can deliver. But I literally looked in the mirror and said, I have people around me that are now better than me. And that's a tough call to make, especially when you've got an ego size of my <laughs> ego, you know. Let me ask you about the casual fan. The T20 on a Friday, you mentioned with the darts. Can you get, because this is a big debate, I think, in a lot of sports at the moment. Can you get the casual fan without alcohol? Um, yes, but it gets harder because it's a different type of promotion. So a casual fan at netball or gymnastics is entirely different to a casual fan at Friday night cricket or Thursday night does. When you promote any business, whether it's sport or any other business, the most important thing is to understand the market you're trying to attract. You have to look into your target market and you have to be honest with yourself. It's not the market that you want. It's the market that fits your product. And don't go into one of those ego things. Oh, my dear, you know, this is a bit whole trading ish you know. Oh, but yes, you know, these people, they're terrible. I mean, they drink beer, you know, goodness me. Well, that's no good. You know, realistically, you want to be a success. Now, if you want to be just a little fringe sport somewhere for your own entertainment, I completely understand. But don't whine that you're not getting enough commercialization or money or airtime. If you want to be a successful commercial sport in today's world, you have to embrace everything from social media, which is so important. You know, you have to look at casual fans. Casual fans are the most important factor of any business. Now, if you talk about beer, for example, there's a sport that's not affected necessarily by beer, is boxing. People go boxing and they don't actually drink. Sometimes have a drink, obviously. But if you're ringside, for example, in England, they don't serve drinks at ringside even. So, you know, when Eddie does a boxing show, he is 5% traditional, 95% casual. His job is to change casual into traditional over a period of time. And that, that's an art form to do that. You know, people will want to go to an Anthony Joshua fight because it's almost like a bucket list thing, isn't it? You know, I was there. 90,000 people at Wembley for Frotch Groves. <laughs> Couldn't see a bloody thing, but I was there, you know. For the programme. <laughs> All my mates at work, everyone sick. Well, of course, you know, live on the zone, it was so much better. It doesn't make it the experience of being there live is so much good, you know. That that's the key issue, and that's probably where Eddie is so far advanced. For those that don't know, is my son Eddie. He's so far advanced on social media with his own millions of followers himself, and his understanding of how the, how today's casual fan thinks. Casual fans want to be entertained. They have no loyalty. Um, they are there on the moment. And the customer experience is probably the most important thing when you start putting together how is it going to be. So it's a different mentality completely on how you cater for a casual fan than a traditional fan. Traditional fan just loves the sport, wants to be there. Uh, boxing, for example, they will talk about what a lovely left jab and casual fan says, that's boring. I want to see someone get belted, you know. 
a different type of work, which involves different type of matchmaking, different type of characters, different type of personalities, and different type of promotion. Simple as that. You've just been talking about the importance of social media and what different markets, what different fans want. When I look at boxing these days, there's almost sort of two sports going on. There's the old sport, like really, really good people fighting, and then there's this, then there's this circus going on. The casuals have spoken, and it might really piss you off if you're a traditional fan. And that's a weakness because it means you're not embracing today's world. And if you don't embrace today's world, how can you commercialise today's world? Athlete talent is king. And maybe they're not the best boxers in the world. But, I mean, was it Jake Paul's fight on Saturday attracted a million over a million pay-per-view buys? Canelo Alvarez is, to my mind, the best fighter in the world at the moment. Uh, he won't get a million for his next fight. And yet that is a, a proper unification fight, etc., etc. So what do we do? We can't ignore it. We have to embrace it. So Eddie's done, KSI, Logan Paul. I was absolutely gobsmacked how much money that made. Gobsmacked. But if 5% of those people, as they grow up, and if we do our job properly, if 5% of every audience of one of these circus events become boxing fans and start appreciating what we appreciate, if we're good enough to sell it to them and give them value for money, then we've achieved our objective. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Barry, we've been talking for half an hour. I reckon we've mentioned certainly a dozen sports, maybe a few few more than that. What? Which sport haven't we mentioned? Uh, we haven't mentioned football. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the reason we don't mention football because it's not a sport anymore. It's just this huge, massive business that puts everything else to shade and you can't compete with at any level. You know, that is football. And the reason why, why is the reason why football's so big? I used to play football in my street up against the lamppost. We used to put our jumpers down on the, the, the little bit of grass we had and make a goalpost. And today, kids are playing football on the beach in Brazil or they're playing football with their furs on in Moscow. In, you know, 
The reason is because it's a truly global game. It appeals to everybody. It is diverse. You know, in China, basketball beats football at the moment. Snooker's pretty close to beating football, but football eventually takes over the world and it dominates the budgets of broadcasters and sponsors. And we pick up what's left. That's our role. Our role is to never stop trying. I think we try harder than football because we have to to make a noise. And that's that's a good thing. But, you know, football is the global game that we all aspire to and we're all jealous of. But you tried football. You had a good, yeah, I love it. You had a good old go. How, how, do you, how do you reflect on that now? 19 years of my life, I could have killed two or three people and been out with, with good conduct. Uh, it was frustrating. I mean, again, I had one of those days when, what am I doing? I've always told all my people, we never buy, we never get involved in football, we never buy a football club. And the next thing you know, someone comes to see me and my heart, my wallet merged. And, I've, <laughs> and uh, I paid £2.43 for Lake Norrin. Why £2.43? Because there was 243,000 shares of the guy I bought off, which was to give me 90% of the club. But, but there was also a few million quid of debts, which I had to settle for as well. Which, uh, at the end of the day, I had 19 years of brief frustration, annoyance, aggravation, beyond belief. Wouldn't change a minute of it. It was the greatest thing. I think for any kid to go when you're growing up, you know, I'm not gonna it sounds like a Monty Python sketch this. <laughs> when you're growing up poor, and we were poor, proper poor, you, you know, my first club I went to was Lake Norwich. I was eleven years old, you know. My mum wouldn't let me go to one of the big clubs because they said she said it was dangerous. I went to Lake Norwich. You never forget the first club you go to. And you end up as the owner of, of that club. It's just like so stimulating. And that's why people sometimes do their brains on football clubs because they forget it's still a business. I ran it as a business as much as I could. But I still lost on average about a million quid a year. Inevitably, when I go to heaven and the good Lord says, you've got 10 things, 10 memories to take with you. And in my life where I've been involved in so many big events and great sporting moments have excited me and I still get excited thinking back to them, probably three out of the ten will be late Norman memories. And yet it was not, you know, it was aggravation or the horribly, horribly flawed business at the lower levels. You know, at the lower levels, it's a hugely flawed business with everyone, politicians especially, wanting to have pictures with them with the superstars of the sport, but they don't really give a shit about the grassroots when, when it really comes to it. I mean, they, they go through the motion. They give us a few quid just to keep us quiet, but they don't they don't really care. I mean, and uh, and, and why should they? We, we're, we're supposed to be big enough and ugly enough to look after ourselves. Barry, they should care, though. They should care because you have highlighted it as an 11-year-old. They are at the heart of every single community up and down the country. So they should. But they, 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 pay, well, they pay lip service to it. Yes, they do. Yeah. The difference is the government has allowed this gigantic structure to evolve with some very smart people involved without taking the control. You know how we talk about ownership? And this is a national game. Now, I believe in free enterprise, of course. But when something is so important to the national 
integrity, the national thought process, their life. You know, you've got to look in the faces of these football fans when they go to their football match, a Barrow on Saturday, a Barnet on Saturday, or Manchester City. They are totally committed in here, totally committed to the goals. They'll moan about everything, but they're totally, they'll be there the week after. They're totally committed. So the government years ago should have appointed an ombudsman to control football, to say to the Premier League, 15% of your television income will be distributed by us to lower league football. And by the way, that's not your decision. Premier League clubs scream about that for about half an hour, then they just adjust their P&L account, same as we all would in business. They're not going to do any harm to anybody. And by the way, that midfielder who wants 500 grand a week is now going to get 450. His children will never starve. If you need people to say, I have the balls, I have the mentality to say, enough is enough, we're taking over this game. But what you've done is you've let clever people run riot, create this, it's an anomaly within society. And you know what? You don't even have to legislate because if you had the threat of an ombudsman, he wouldn't have to have legislative powers because he would be saying to the Premier League, this is what we want you to do. Go away and work out how you're going to do it. Because if you don't, we will take it legislation out to force you to do it. If it was a corporate structure and, and some part of industry suddenly had a boom time, like North Sea Oil or something like that, you'd raise additional taxation on that sector. They've never done that on football. And you know why? Because very few football clubs make a profit. And those that make a profit usually is being channeled out by way of dividends or interest payments to overseas owners who have invested in a club, for the large part taken their investment out almost immediately by borrowing against existing assets uh, and run their business accordingly. That's something which you can do in a business structure, but you shouldn't be doing within the national game. Football as well has obviously an increasing relationship with the with the gambling community, with betting companies. You've worked in sports that over the years had to move away from tobacco sponsorship, which is, is the prime example. Do you think it's coming where, where football will have to move away from gambling sponsorship? No question. Probably coming, probably, probably coming within the next two months. You know, I think it's in November the government reports due out on, on gambling. Uh, I've no doubt that the action will be taken. I'm, I'm at a crossroads with it. On the one hand, you know, we, we never want to see people suffer, but there is this democratic rule uh, of freedom of choice of the individual, which is goes beyond legislation. Is and and there is a there is also a rule of entertainment, if you like. You you can make a case for tobacco, tobacco sponsors because of the health risk and it's killing people. That that argument does apply to some extent to gambling companies, but I don't like legislation where, what do they say last year, 50 million people in this country had a bet and a few hundred have a serious problem, for which I feel great sympathy towards them. But they need help. People are addicted to gambling and and there needs to be some system in there. Does that automatically stop people advertising gambling, which itself actually helps certain sports. But then again, the tobacco sponsorship helps sports. It just kills people at the same time. 
So realistically, the position we're in is the government will take action in November. I believe it will probably stop gambling on shirts. If you're on a shirt sponsor, obviously every kid that goes to a football sees that. And, and so the, the argument would be that the addiction could, could start there. I think there'll be other restrictions on uh, special offers. In other words, inducements to gamble. I think that's the big killer for me. Inducements to gamble, if you have got a problem, actually elevate that problem to a really serious problem. The way the world is going, we have to be very conscious about those type of decisions. But at the same time, there are some benefits to a lot of sports. We as a company, we have a lot of involvement with gambling companies uh, and we work very well with them. And they've helped us change the lives of thousands of sportsmen and women. So it's a balancing act. I think football's big enough to overcome it easier than any other sport because there are so many other companies out there that want to be involved in football because of the size of the of the industry. This show will will have gambling adverts in it. You know, my, my industry is in the same boat as as, as yours. Um, and if you only have to look at the states yeah, where yeah. that is the big revenue stream of the next decade. So they say. And if it is, it's going to be yeah. big, but it's going to be difficult, you know. I mean, I think a lot of people are putting an awful lot of effort behind gambling in America. They're going to learn a lot from us, aren't they? They're going to learn a lot, and they're going to, they're going to learn from them because they're going to start gambling on the big sports, the big three, really, in the NFL, NBA, baseball. And these sports are going to want a shed load of money for their fixtures or the gambling. And in a way, that will educate the repercussions of that, when you look into, will we'll go down to suddenly horse racing will look cheap in terms of fixtures and percentage of gambling income. And then the horse racing authorities will say, why aren't we getting as much money? The world starts to rebalance. Prize money in the UK in horse racing is appallingly low. Uh, you know, I have a load of horses. I have a load of horses and my wife breeds thoroughbreds and wins big races and so I'm first-hand into it. But I also have a couple of horses in France and they pay far more money than the UK and yet they don't have bookmakers. Okay, where's... You know, so it starts the brain process, doesn't it? And, and America's gambling will, will accelerate that process of, well, they're doing it over there. Why aren't we doing it over here? That's going to be interesting conversation over the next few years. But it will expand in all sorts of different ways, as, as I understand it as well, Barry. You know, So a broadcast might then... Whilst the game will be the same broadcast, they might provide three or four different feeds, depending on what you as the viewer want from your feed, the mainstream normal coverage. There could be the specific betting coverage to with more data, more analytics. You know, this this might be, you know, uh -huh. if you put if you put five bucks on this in the next two minutes, our data shows this is more likely to happen. We this is gonna go. I mean, you're absolutely right, by the way. And as usual. We are years ahead of the game. I mean, we created events six, seven years ago specifically for bookmakers to stream, for example. So they're not on broadcast. They're not available to television companies. And uh, whether it's snooker, pool, darts, those three, probably the three biggest for us, where we literally we get paid per match. Snooker shootout is a one-frame shootout, right? And the traditionalists hate it. One frame, and it's a ranking event, which gives it kudos. Why is it a ranking event, by the way? To, to make sure that all the top players play in it. And, and they're all over in 10 minutes, and the bookmakers love it, and they pay us so much per game. I mean, it's pretty basic. So 
churn out that content, which you own, reward people. It also, by the way, comes up with some amazing stories. You know? One frame, anyone, pretty well anyone can win. So you do get some great media stories of someone going from zero to hero, changing his life in one, which is what makes sport so exciting. Does that take extra policing? Does that, and I'm, when I use the word policing, I mean obviously in a in a in a gambling sense of making sure you know. Years ago, when I first took over snooker, the first thing that happened to me was we had a gambling problem exposed, and we had a case with John Higgins' failure to report an approach. Basically, that was it. It wasn't more than that because nothing happened, but it, you know, who knows? But clearly, we had a problem, and we had a problem because we didn't have any activity. So the players couldn't make a living. They had to put bread on the table. And it, and it was so, you know, temptation is a terrible thing. And it's all very well for us taking the moral high ground, but we're not skin. You know, we're not wondering how we're going to pay the world. So I understand both sides of it. I hate it. I hate anything that appears affects integrity. But I do understand the human weakness. When this came out, I went to see a guy called Lord Don Stevens, who was head of Metropolitan Police for many years, probably the most famous policeman in the world, and said, I've got a problem. And he hatched out a plan for me with some very, very high-ranked people in the world of not just policing. I mean, we, we sat there with the head of SAS and the head of counterintelligence, and, and we devised an integrity unit between us. And, you know, I'd like to take the credit for it because Lord John won't. He should because it was his basic idea. I just nicked it. I went along with him, you know. He was too scary for me, you know. Uh, and we've come up with an integrity unit, which we've extended into darts and snooker, for example. Every single game, every single match is what the betting industry look on our integrity units as the finest in the world. And I think we've got rid of any problem now because people are seriously concerned that they're going to get caught. If there's a certainty they're going to get caught, people won't commit the offence to start with because there's no value. But it is a problem in terms of sport. A lot of sports, tennis in particular, is is constantly under scrutiny for dodgy matches. At the, not at the top level so much as at the lower level. But you've got to think like a bad person to understand how you cure it. Barry, we've, we've talked an awful lot about the various industries that you're involved in. You're getting an award tonight from the industry. We're recording this on a Wednesday. It goes out on a Thursday. By the time people hear this... You'll have, you'll have received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Sport Industry Awards. So, first of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a bit sad in a way. I'm, I mean, I'm really... Listen, I'm the same as anyone else. I love having a pat on the back. Of course, we all do. We've all got egos. We all want to be told how good we are. But it's just sad that it always comes late in your life, doesn't it? And in a way, it's a way... I mean, in the last few years, I have had so far... I mean, I'm running out. So, I've had inductions into the Boxing Hall of Fame in America and to the Billiard Congress Hall of Fame in America who, well, snooker, obviously, the darts. So I'm four Hall of Fames. I've had an honorary doctorate from East Ham University, from East London University, a doctorate in business. And of course, in December, I got the OBE from the Queen, which was wonderful. Now I'm getting this wonderful award, Lifetime Achievement. And like, where have you been all my life? I'm 73. Can you, yeah. is, it, is this a way of saying goodbye? Just in case you die, we would feel so guilty if we hadn't given you something, you know? So we're going to give you this now. And I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it with a smile. I'm going to take it with a smile on my face and love every second. I mean, of course, I'm a, 
I've got a massive ego. You don't do what I do unless you really believe you're something special. <laughs> Uh, and it's fully deserved, Barry. And yet, for for all the awards that you've just mentioned, before we started recording the podcast, I still think if you make the over seventies England cricket team and can pretend to, and can pretend to be Ian Botham, that is still what it comes down to. So for all the business, for all the money, when we talk yeah, commercial, my... we talk all of this. In all of us is still trying to be our heroes. Our heroes. Our heroes. We're trying to be our heroes. Suddenly, what I'm finding now in the latter stage of my life is if you take a line, the people I'm playing with now, I know I knew a lot of them in my youth when I was playing at my peak, if you like. And I was nowhere near as good as them. But of course, if you keep the enthusiasm, mental strength, fitness as much as you can, and you know, physical strength as well, the line, so they were there when I was young and I was here. But now it's getting closer and closer because in the 70s, I can, I can outperform them physically and mentally. doesn't make me as good as them technically, but sometimes it does a job. So it's a dream. And my son especially takes a mic out of me, Dad, why are you doing Why are you doing So, son, if you take the dream out number one, we'd be out of business. And number two, as a person, we would be so much poorer. The dream is what people dedicate their lives to achieve. And the truth of it is most of them fail. The journey that makes the enthusiasm. And that's what I've managed to maintain in my head for 73 years. And I guess until the day I drop, I'll always try to be the best I can be. And that's all I can ever tell anybody. This is what you got with me. May not be pretty, but this is the best I can be. Love talking to you. I absolutely love talking to you whenever I interview you. But um, you've also given me hope for my later years, Barry, that I might eventually make it. But the problem with that, as we all know, is the hope that kills you, isn't it? But uh, <laughs> thank you for allowing me to dream for a few more years, Barry. Yeah. We've loved having you on. You are a top man. Good luck with the award tonight. It's fully deserved. Thanks, boys. Well, listen, listen. And the cricket. Every day is another challenge. Well, that is it. Thanks to Barry in particular. Dan Bardell back on this feed on Friday to look ahead to the weekend. I'll be back on Tuesday for the Athletic Football Podcast. And then Matt Slater back next week with me for the Business of Sport podcast. And if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, then don't forget you can head to theathletic.com slash football pod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. And with that, you can read Tim Spears' exclusive interview with the Wolves chairman, Jeff Shee, uh, where they talk about the transfer window, the ambitions of the club, new manager Bruno Large, old manager Nuno, uh, what's going to happen to Molyneux, and plenty more besides. So, theathletic.com slash football pod and you get the 33% discount. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.